Hi, this is Kara O'Keefe, director of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit and festival based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the 2019 festival coming up in October and other programming we have coming up in the spring, visit our website, fallforthebook.org. We're very happy to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud and particularly excited to have our guest here today, Rebecca Mackay. Rebecca Mackay is the Chicago-based author of the novels The Great Believers, The Hundred Year House, and The Borrower, as well as the short story collection Music for Wartime. Her short fiction was chosen for the Best American Short Stories for four consecutive years. The recipient of a 2014 NEA fellowship, Mackay is on the MFA faculties of Sierra Nevada College and Northwestern University, and she's the artistic director of Story Studio Chicago. Her most recent novel, The Great Believers, is the winner of the Carnegie Medal and was a finalist for the National Book Award. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. The Great Believers deals with the AIDS crisis in Chicago in the 1980s and into the 90s. And you grew up in a generation that was very aware of the crisis, but you were also mostly too young to be directly affected by it. As you were researching and writing the book, did any of your own memories of that time inform the book? Or, mm. you know, as you were writing, did the reading, did the research and writing process make you see your own memories of that time in a different light? Yeah, my memories of that time were largely news and then eventually to the extent that the crisis filtered into movies and TV shows, it was that. It was really at a distance, which was not insignificant, though. I've said before that I think for my exact generation, kids born in the late 70s, the AIDS crisis was the backdrop to our childhoods in the same way that the Vietnam War might have been for an older generation. You know, for people who didn't have family affected by it, it's just there. It's constant. It's in the news. And it's the biggest thing going on. I didn't realize until later that a lot of adults didn't consider it to be the biggest thing going on. Um, I was really drawn in by those stories. I was very concerned by it as a child. And even in, you know, the way kids would talk about it, joke about it, unfortunately, and worry about it at school, it was really a big part of our childhoods. And then by the time I got to high school, it was 1991. And all of our sex ed was about HIV prevention. And no, you can't get it from toilet seats, all that stuff. I, you know, have an inordinate number of gay friends, but they tend to be more my age, my generation. And so a lot of what I was learning, and as I researched the book, I was learning for the first time. And it it really did, um, I had had a lot of misconceptions about many things. One thing that I, um, just on a technical level, one thing I didn't understand was the incubation period of AIDS. I And fortunately, I figured it out before I was too far into the novel, but I was thinking people would get it and then you know, after catching it, die a few months later. It's actually about a five-year period before there are symptoms. And looking back, I think I learned incorrectly because of the way it was portrayed in the media. Other things, you know, my book starts in 1985, which is the year that the test for what we now call HIV came on the market. And this was just a generational assumption, me looking back from this century, assuming that everyone would have been happy to have that test and eager to get tested, um, when in fact it was for many reasons often quite the opposite, concern about the psychological effects of that test, whether the test could be trusted, and even more so whether um, the government could subpoena those test results and use them against people. 
Yeah, yeah. You, you talk a little bit about like the generational divide and how this crisis was understood. And at this point in time, we're removed enough from the 80s and 90s that to the point where there are generations who are very aware of HIV and AIDS, but don't understand the full scope of what it was like at that period of time. Yeah. Did Did you see a lot of that generational disconnect as you were as you were researching? You know, both in terms of like how, like you said, adults. Right. reacted to it at the time. I haven't seen it so much. I, I didn't see it so much in the research because I was really researching archivally, looking back at, you know, gay weekly papers from the 80s and then doing interviews with people who had lived through the thick of it. But I've seen it more since my book has been out where people have... Um, talk to me, you know, expressed surprise at certain things that they read in the book, people who are younger than me, um, including, um, you know, gay men, um, which has been really interesting for me, you know, saying that they hadn't been aware of certain parts of what they consider to be their own history. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the thing that I've been the most honored by in all of my touring has been the few times that I've had older gay men who have read the book have me inscribe the book for a younger gay friend who they feel like they, you know, they want to pass this on, you know, so that this person can see what they lived through. And of course, you know, as you're writing, all you're hoping is that you just don't mess it up too badly, right? Uh, I hope that I, you know, vaguely get this kind of right. And that um, I just, I just find that so touching and and thrilling that um, it could not only kind of pass as a reliable account, but that could, you know, people could be using as a way to inform each other about what happened. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the things I know you've talked about in the research for this book is that you you ran into the issue where there wasn't a whole lot of literature out there about the AIDS crisis in Chicago. So you really had to do a lot of very different kind of research and interviews. And Yeah, I was assuming that I, you know, early on that I could go to the library and find at least a few books, nonfiction books about AIDS in America's third largest city. And there were zero. Wow. Um, there are chapters of some longer books, you know, about LGBTQ history in Chicago. There's some good archives online. You know, there's a memoir that just came out last year that's from a woman who was a nurse in the 90s. But um, that's it. And and I was even looking, you know, in some of the bigger nonfiction books, the famous ones, you know, How to Survive a Plague by David France, trying to look in the index for Chicago, and Chicago's not in the index. Wow. And I understand if you're setting out just to tell the story of HIV AIDS in the 80s, you're going to start with New York and San Francisco. You might talk about, you know, the Centers for Disease Control. You're kind of going all over the place. But... The stories of smaller cities, and it's not like Chicago's a tiny city, those stories of smaller cities have not been recorded nearly to the extent that you would think they would. And we have specific things to learn from different cities' reactions to this crisis. Chicago was far from perfect in the way they handled it, but handled it a lot better than a lot of other cities, um, mostly on the grassroots level, on the, you know, just the way that they gay community was able to come together in Chicago for several reasons was a little bit more effective than some other cities. But there are places, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin has a uniquely devastating story about uh, with AIDS that I didn't have room for in my book. Um, But someone needs to be, you know, writing that down. And I've been as I've toured, I've been um, encouraging people everywhere I've gone, if they know people who have stories to tell who want to tell their stories, um, if they have stories to tell to get those down in writing, because we desperately need to learn from them. 
you know, one of the things you, you talked about is um, meeting gay men who had lived through this and that you talked with a lot of them as you were doing the research. In your acknowledgments, you talk about, you know, the concerns of appropriation and what responsibility a writer has when they're writing the story and of lives and experiences that are really different from their own. And in this case, there must have been a lot of pressure, not only thinking about how you approach writing about a marginalized community, but writing about such a traumatic time for them as right. well. Right. Yeah. Um, I was in a constant panic for the four or five years that I worked on this book about whether I should do this, whether I could do it well, whether people would be mad at me regardless of whether I did it well. You know, a lot of questions. And I've written a bunch of essays about it that um, anyone who really wants to learn more, I have an essay that went up on Lit Hub the day the book came out. And it's called, I didn't title it, but it's called How to Write Across Difference. Um, and it's basically breaking down kind of my thought process, but then what I did to make sure that I wasn't being obnoxious as I wrote this. But no, it's, you know, I think the two questions that I had to ask myself were, first of all, can I do this well? Can I do this in a way that does not reinforce stereotype, that doesn't do damage in the world? Of course, I couldn't answer that for myself because I'm alone in a room writing. But my answer was, I think I can do it well with endless research and by finding readers who are going to look at it before it goes to my editor and be brutally honest with me about what I got wrong on the detail level. Mm -hmm. And the other question was, should I do this? You know, would putting this out in the world, even in its ideal form, do harm? Um, You know, would I be stealing voice from people with direct stories to tell? Or would this be a way to draw attention to those stories and to amplify those voices? Ultimately, my answer to that was the latter, or I would not have published it. The way publishing works, the success of a book like this is going to make a publisher infinitely more likely to put money behind an LGBTQ voice, this kind of story. Uh, I shouldn't say infinitely. That sounds that sounds totally grandiose. I don't mean that. But the success of books like this, like mine, like books by Garth Greenwell or Alexander Chi or Hanya Yanagihara with A Little Life, make it much more likely for a publisher next year to put money behind an LGBTQ book, a book about HIV AIDS. Those books 20 years ago would not have been considered fodder for your aunt's book club. 30 years ago, those books had their own bookstores, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this is not like a contest where I'm getting the prize and running away and then someone else doesn't get a chance to tell the story. It doesn't work like that. And what I, my greatest hope in putting it out there was that I would hear from people saying that this started them reading more about AIDS. And in fact, I've been really gratified that that's been the case, especially like the... I don't know, you get these these women who I'll hear from them or I'll get emails saying, you know, I was around, but I was living in the suburbs raising my kids and I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think feeling guilty, honestly, about who they voted for at that time in retrospect. And then talking about how they've gone on to find other books or found, you know, I have a landing page on my website with further resources and that they've kept reading about it or that they've gone out and found documentaries. And that makes me so happy. Would you mind uh, telling us a couple of those further resources that, yeah. you, that you particularly really Wouldn't it be funny enjoyed? if I had none? You just called me on my blog. No, like, right. no. <laughs> no. Not my intention at all, no, but. No, no, no. I'm kidding. Um, yeah. I, although I was, I was complaining before that Chicago was not in the index, I do recommend very strong 
strongly How to Survive a Plague by David France, which is a newer book. And if you're looking for the big sort of nonfiction compendious account, it's really a good starting place. A lot of people start with And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz, which was published in 1989. It's a really good book. You need to know going in that his theory of patient zero is unfounded and was really harmful, actually, in many ways. Um, so if if you read it, you gotta ignore that part. But it's beautifully done. More recently, you know, I'm looking at all kinds of memoirs. Just because I mentioned it before, the one I'll bring up because um, it's Chicago based is called Taking Turns. The author is M. K. Cherwiak, and she's this woman. She was a charge nurse at Illinois Masonic Hospital, which is the exact AIDS care unit that I'm writing about in The Great Believers, and. She's a wonderful graphic novelist, graphic memoirist, and, you know, it's really writing very close to the bone about her own personal experiences as a caregiver, um, but it's also that Chicago perspective. So I've been recommending that to a lot of people. If you want a good novel, I recommend The Angel of History by Rabia Alamedin. I could go on, but I'll... <laughs> if you look, if you, anyone who wants to, if you look at my website, I have a... Um, if you go to the Great Believers page, then there's a page called... Um, I think it's called Essays and Resources or Interviews and Resources or something like that, but I have a big list there. Great. You know, you talked a little bit about the ways that this book has made people think about, you know, who they voted for at that time. So the book really intersects with with politics and it's also really in tune with other aspects of things that happened at the time. The Challenger explosion is in there and uh, Fiona is in Paris during the 2015 bombings in mm-hmm. that timeline. Could you talk a little bit about how you went about incorporating some of those other big historical events? Yeah, I've actually gotten um, very friendly complaint that I didn't put the Super Bowl in because the Bears were in the Super Bowl <laughs> in 1986, and it was it was one of those. It was like I, I know there's a reason. It was like I skipped like because it skips ahead. I kind of skipped the Super Bowl, so yeah. I'm, my deep apologies. Now I think that um, in some cases I was looking at the you know, the calendar of kind of world events in the 80s and figuring out, you know, what things would be mentioned, things would be a part of these people's lives. And some of those were some, you know, global or national things like the Challenger. Some of them were more, you know, what exactly happened at the Chicago Gay Pride Parade in 1986. And I want to get those details right. For the Paris terror attacks in 2015, actually what happened was I was writing Fiona's 2015 sections in the fall of 2015 and I was at an artist residency I was doing nothing but writing and I was very I was really only working on her sections I was really living in that world I kept I had Google Street View up on my computer every day walking the little dude around the streets of Paris and I just to keep up my pace I was like I'm just going to write a day per day it's going to be today and I'm going to write it and then the terror attacks happened and I think just like anyone who loves Paris I was shaken I wasn't you know personally affected but was very shaken but also on top of that it was this you know I felt like I was there because I you know I live in my head so much I felt like I was in Paris and then it was you know later and this is going to make me sound very selfish but eventually I had to face the question of do I move my timeline do I move it back in time I didn't like that because I liked it to be exactly 30 years for a while I thought I would move it into 2016 and then 2016 it was like there's no way these characters are talking about anything but politics in 2016 and I just don't want to invite that into my novel that particular political era into my novel so I ultimately decided that it was already a novel about the 
brutal and random invasions of the world. And that including another one of those would be really genuinely organic because it it really happened while I was writing. It invaded my novel in the same way that it invades Fiona's life and just messes stuff up. Yeah. And one of the other things, the ways that history kind of intersects with this is there's the story of Nora, who is is greatly affected by uh, World War One and the fallout of that. I understand that was originally going to be the main story yeah. that you were writing. Can yeah. you talk about how that kind of changed? Yeah, here's what happened. OK, I had this idea to write about an artist model in 1920s Paris and this question of what it means to be a muse and especially in a time when women couldn't support themselves by their art but could being a muse be your art in a way and the story that I had originally was going to be that there was this painting that would come up in the news um, come up for auction of dubious authenticity and this woman is who's quite old, so it has to be the 80s because she can't live much past the 80s. She's going to be at home and she'll see this painting and on the news and she alone knows that it's authentic because that's her, so she's trying to convince people. And I fortunately told this all to my husband and he very sweetly was like, you know, honey, that's the plot of the movie Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) They find that sketch and she's like, it's me and I alone shall tell the tale. Um, And so I was like, oh, that's a really that's really bad so um I kind of panicked and then I was like well okay maybe it's more about the correspondence between her and this art guy maybe it's like a two-hander sort of and because I already had the 80s I have an art guy in the 80s um, the AIDS epidemic is something that I've long been interested in writing about I had a story in my story collection about New York and the AIDS crisis. And I felt like, okay, that'll be a subplot. Maybe that'll be something going on in the background. And the more I, you know, kind of got my, wrapped my head around the project before I started, which included research, the more compelled I felt by the Chicago AIDS storyline. And it was still just going to be the two of them, but it was going to, you know, turn into Yale's point of view. And then Fiona's point of view came in even later. So it just, you know, it just grew. And it's funny because I'll, I'll get I, I really appreciate the way you're asking questions because I'll so often the question I get is, why did you suddenly decide to write a story that was about the AIDS, AIDS in Chicago and Paris in the 2050? Like as if I just had this one whole idea and sat down and wrote this thing, which is, you know, you know, as a writer, is not the way things work. So, yeah, it's it the story kind of seems like it grew much more organically yeah. out of the characters as you were meeting them and discovering yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting, too, to think about that original idea and which sounds like it could have ended up being such a different story. And when I think about all of your work, you know, you have three novels now and, and a collection of short stories. Your interests as a writer seem to cover a lot of territory. And one of the mm-hmm. things I always love about your work is I never know what to expect from the next book. A lot of writers develop a reputation for what kind of subject matter they're interested in. And it seems like with each new book, you're always interested in something really new. Yeah. Um, I would say that my one, I, I always joke that like what you hope is that what you think is your rut, other people see as your themes. <laughs> um, and I would say that my one rut slash theme is that I'm only able really to write about people in the arts or academia. You know, I, I, I like I used to beat myself up about that. And when I was a very young writer, like college and a couple of years after, I kept trying to write about, you know, gritty people of the streets. I was raised by two linguistics professors. It did not go well. Like, I, that's not my thing. 
all my friends are writers and artists. So, you know, I think we need much, we need more people out there writing about people in blue collar jobs, economically disadvantaged people. But I'm it's not my skill set. And I, I don't like that about myself. But you know, I do what I do. It's funny because I'm looking at my next book that I'm working on now. And yeah, it's like wildly different in subject matter and in form and everything. But the I'm still trying to decide what my main character's job is. And I, I keep going back and forth between like, maybe she's an opera singer. Maybe she's a French professor. <laughs> like I can't, I can't do like systems administrator. I just, I, I don't have it in me. Um, so. Although um, Yale does work like in, in a more administrative role. That was my so. big stretch, right? <laughs> like, no, he's he's a museum curator. Yes. He's not an artist, yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, and uh, that is it for this episode of Mason Out Loud. You can find other episodes and rate and review us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and read on.